Anyway, we are so glad that you are here. We start our Advent uh, series today, and we are going to be looking at Christ in prophecy. And my hope is that over the next four weeks, you are encouraged because you are going to see Christ in the Old Testament foretold, and we're going to look at that fulfillment in the New Testament. So it should be really fun. Well, many of you are familiar with this term right here. Spoiler alert. How many are familiar with this term? Spoiler alert. Now, if you're not familiar with it, it simply means this. It's a phrase that we say when we're going to reveal information or give away, like we're, we're going to reveal information that's going to give away the ending to like a book or a movie or a sporting event. So we, before we say that information, we go, hey, spoiler alert, you may not want to hear this. A really good example of this would be on Sundays here at church, a lot of people are recording NFL games, Right. Right. So for example, a couple of weeks ago when the Minnesota Vikings destroyed Green Bay, a lot of you didn't want to know that that was happening, and I, I kept that to myself. So I want you to know that. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, God has a sense of humor because every Green Bay fan in the Valley seem, seemingly goes to this church, but I'm a Viking fan. I am with, I am with the righteous team. Any other Vikings with me out here? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're few, but we're strong. We're few, but we're strong. I'm just out of curiosity, how many of you hate to know the ending of the storybook or movie or sporting event before you watch it? You do not want to be told. How many of you? Raise your hands. Okay. Now, how many of you are like me? You could care less. You can tell me the ending of a storybook or sporting event and I'll still watch it. How many of you don't care? Yes. The normal ones. Yes. Very good. The righteous ones. If you're a Viking fan and you don't know, mind the end of the story, we come talk to me after the service. Listen, if you don't mind knowing the end of the story, it's good news for you today. And here is why. Because the very first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, we're given the very first prophecy about Jesus. And you know what this prophecy is? It is not only the biggest spoiler alert in human history, it is also the best spoiler alert in human history. Because it's in this prophecy, the very first prophecy about Christ, that we are told that Christ will deliver a decisive and devastating blow to Satan's power and authority. So church, it's on that note, it is my honor to take us to the word of God today. Genesis chapter 3. It's my honor to introduce to you the biggest and best spoiler alert in all of human history. Hear the word of God this morning. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Amen. Church, I present to you the word of God this morning. So the irony of this prophecy, the very first prophecy about Christ, is that it comes in the midst of judgment upon Satan. Think about it. In the midst of a judgment upon Satan comes hope, and not just any type of hope, incredible hope. Because in this prophecy, we learn that although Satan may have won this battle in his deception of Eve, he's ultimately going to lose the war with one of Eve's offspring. That's the whole point of this little part right here. He shall bruise your head. He shall crush your head. Christ will deliver a de decisive and devastating blow to Satan, resulting in his ultimate spiritual defeat. Now, I want to stop right now and tell you why this is important, because I'm going to bring this up again and again and again today. Here is why this is important. You and I can live and should live like people who know the end of the story. Amen? We know the end of the story because our God has told us the end of the story. In the end, Christ wins. He won at Calvary and he's going to win at the consummation of all things. Jesus wins. We have one job in this lifetime. Live like people who know the end of the story. Live boldly, courageously, because we serve a king and are part of a kingdom that will last forever. Amen? There will be one kingdom left standing when all is said and done, and that is the kingdom of God, and you and I are a part of it. Let's live like it. Amen? Let's live like it here and now. Very first, chapter 3, Genesis, God says, here, I'm going to tell you the biggest and best spoiler alert in human history. Jesus, the coming Messiah, the one that is coming into the world, will crush the head of the serpent. This is confirmed and fulfilled in the New Testament in many places. 1 John 3, 8 says, For this reason the Son of God appeared. Uh, this, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Pastor and theologian Sam Storm says this, What are Satan's works? Morally, he entices us to sin. Physically, he inflicts disease and seeks to destroy those who bear the image of God. Intellectually, he seduces us into error. And spiritually, he blinds the minds of unbelievers, lest they see and believe the gospel. This is the work of the devil, and Christ came to destroy this work. Not surprisingly, other biblical passages speak about the defeat of Satan. John 12, 31 says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Colossians says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And listen to this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. One last verse, Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Folks, that's why Genesis 3.15 is a verse you want to know. It is a verse you want to know because it, because it is the first biggest and best spoiler alert in all of human history. It tells us that Christ will deliver a decisive and devastating blow to Satan's power and authority. And again, that means you and I have one job in this lifetime. Live like people who know the end of the story. 
Live like people who knows who know what kingdom is going to be left standing when all is said and done and what king will be sitting on the throne when all is said and done. Amen? Let's live like people who are sold out for that kingdom now because we know how the story ends. We know what kingdom is going to be standing at the end. Let's go all in now. Folks, the kingdoms of this world rise and fall. The politicians of this world come and go. You can put your hope there, but it'll be a fleeting hope. You know how the story ends. One kingdom will be left standing when all is said and done. Let's go all in on that kingdom. Amen? That is our job. He has told us what will happen at Calvary and what will happen at the consummation of all things. We have one job. Live like we know how the story ends. Now, delivering this decisive blow to Satan will come at a cost, according to our passage. Let's look at it again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he, the one that is coming, the Messiah, Jesus, he shall bruise your head, crush your head. But in the process, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, you will. You will cause some damage to the one that is coming into the world. Of course, Satan first tried to strike out against Jesus when he tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the, temple was, the devil was seeking to bring down Jesus, to cause him to stumble and fall. What's interesting is that many Christians are under the mistaken impression that the reason Jesus didn't sin was because he was God. But remember, Jesus was tempted in the flesh, which means he resisted those temptations in his humanity. And you know why that's important? Because one of the decisive victories that Jesus had over Satan was his resisting of the temptation, these temptations. And in so doing, he, become, he became a perfect and great high priest for you and me. That's what the Bible says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who was in every respect, uh, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what this means is that when you're struggling with sin, don't run from Jesus, run to him. He can not only sympathize with you, but he can strengthen you. He's been there. He knows what it's like to be attacked by the devil in this regard. He has overcome him. But the main fulfillment of this passage in Genesis 3.15, where it says, you shall bruise his heel, has to be the crucifixion. When Satan entered into Judas Iscariot and he betrayed Jesus, and we read about that in Luke. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now listen to this. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they sought an opportunity to betray him to them, in the absence of the crowd. Now, the great irony is that when the serpent strikes out against the Messiah at Calvary, he bruises him, he wounds him badly. But in this wounding, we are healed. Amen? That's the great irony, is that in this wounding of the Messiah, you and I are healed. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is why I said this prophecy in Genesis 3.15, it is a prophecy that you want to know and know well because it is the biggest and best spoiler alert in all of human history. Because in it we're told that Christ wins. There will be a decisive and devastating blow brought to Satan, his power and authority in the life 
and ministry of Christ. And that is exactly what happened at Calvary. At Calvary, the serpent's head was crushed and you and I were set free from our sins and given a hope of eternal life. Amen? Talk about a victory. Talk about a victory. You know what I find incredibly interesting? Do you know who the first beings were to recognize who Jesus was and why he came when he was upon earth? Of all things, it was demons. It was demons. Don't believe me? Look at this. And when he came to the other side, to the, uh, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The time of what? The time in, before the time that he crushes the head of the serpent. Mark chapter 1. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And by the way, we're going to Israel in March, and you will be, if you're going on that trip, we have about 100 people going on that trip, you will be in this very synagogue. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Well, as a matter of fact, that's exactly why he came. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God that came to destroy the works of the devil. You are here to crush the head of the serpent. One more. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, that is to Jesus, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Listen, the demons understood better than anyone living in the first century that Jesus' primary mission wasn't to start a political or social revolution, but a spiritual one. The religious leaders thought they were looking for a Messiah that would be a political leader or a military leader. But the demons understood what the, the religious leaders didn't. Jesus wasn't here to start a social or political revolution, but a spiritual one. By the way, the same mistake is being made by those today who claim that the principal reason that Jesus came to earth was to fight for social or economic justice. No, it wasn't. Such people are trying to make Jesus into a social justice warrior, just like the Jews wanted him to be a political or military warrior. The truth is, and this is so important, folks, get this. Jesus ultimately came to destroy the works of the devil and to set people free from the bondage of sin and eternal condemnation and to bring people into the kingdom of light that they might be co-heirs with Christ of all things for all eternity. Amen? This is the promise of the gospel. This is why he came. And while the religious leaders in the first century were clueless to this reality, ironically, the demons weren't. But here's what's even more interesting. And this is where this sermon is going to get really interesting. And I might step on some toes, so fair warning. Perhaps even more telling than what we learn from the demons was what we learn from Jesus himself about why he had come into the world. So church, hear the words of Jesus and why he came into the world. Mark chapter 3. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he, Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now listen to this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Why did Jesus come into the world to bind the strong man so that he could plunder his house? Now, this is incredibly important because according to Jesus' own words, Jesus in some way bound Satan at his first coming so as to plunder his house. Now, I know what you're immediately going to say. You're going to say, isn't Satan the God of this world? Isn't Satan, according to the Bible, roaming around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? How in the world could Satan have been bound at Christ's first coming? The answer, of course, Satan is a roaring lion. Of course, he is the God of this world. If that's the case, then what is Jesus talking about? So brace yourself. Some of you that are into end times, brace yourselves because this is where I might step on a few toes. What is interesting is that there's one other place in the Bible where we see Satan being bound, and that is in Revelation chapter 20. So let me read it for you. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any, uh, any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I want to say something very important here. That thousand years, he's bound for a thousand years. There are many really good theologians that say that that's yet in the future. But there's also a lot of good theologians that say that's representative of church history. That because in the Bible, when you see the word thousand, the number thousand, like the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord, it's always figurative because the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord, but so do all the other cattle on all the other hills, right? So good theologians fall in different camps. I want you to understand that. But I want to make I want to make a case for that thousand years being the church age. And you don't have to believe that to be a member in good standing or anything here at the church. I just want to give you this perspective. Because we see Satan bound twice. And we have to ask the question, are there two different bindings of Satan? Did Christ bind him at his first coming and that he's going to be bound yet again in the future? Or are those bindings talking about one and the same event? Now, if they are describing one and the same event, and I think they are, that's just me personally, what might we learn from this? Well, look at what, the, look at what our passage says. Why was he bound? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. What this would mean is that before Christ came and died at Calvary, Satan was unbound and he was able to deceive the nations. Now question, were the nations in the Old Testament deceived? Yes. As a matter of fact, Israel, as much as a light as they were supposed to be, they were a horrible light. They, they were full of sin and problems themselves. But even, even then, the nations remained in incredible darkness. Very few Gentile nations even knew about the one true God, let alone worshipped him. But everything changed when Christ came. Everything changed to Calvary. Because according to Jesus' own words, he was going to bind the strong man so that he could plunder his house. 
Now what this means is that Satan isn't bound from every activity. He's just bound from one specific activity, from deceiving the nations. Which would explain why when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he said things like this. And he said, what can we, and what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus is saying, remember when Jesus showed up, he, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He was telling the religious leaders and those that would listen, the kingdom of God, I'm here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And understand this, it's going to start small. It's going to, it's going to start like a little seed, but it's going to grow big. It's going to be a kingdom that's going to go to the ends of the earth and draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into it. And it can't be stopped. And you know why? Because I bound the strong man so as to plunder his house, this world. His house is, is his world, and I'm going to plunder it. I'm going to take this, my kingdom, and my gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth, and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be drawn into it. This would also help us make sense of verses like this. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Well, in what sense was Satan cast out of the world? Because he's still the God of this world. He still tempts people. He's still divisive. Well, he was cast out in the sense that his ability to deceive the nations was, he was bound from being able to do that sort of thing. And so what has happened throughout church history? The gospel has spread to the nations and has literally transformed the world. Christianity is now the biggest religion in the world. Now, I, for just for, for the sake of fun, okay, you don't have to, believe, if you don't agree with my, what I'm saying right now, that's fine. But just for the sake of it, let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. What does it say happens at the end of the thousand years? I'm just saying, if that thousand years is representative of church history, what does it say happens at the end of the thousand years? When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to what? Deceive the nations. He will again have the ability to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Question for you. Are the nations deceived today? I think you could make a strong case it is. They are. And when did that deception really start to take root? I'm just throwing out a theory here. You don't have to believe this. So some of you faint when I say this. That's okay. One theory in particular has done more damage in this world, and it started around the 1850s, and that was the theory of evolution. Evolution. Because the theory of evolution said, we don't need God. You evolved. There is no God. You're here. The, the universe popped into existence from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. And it was that theory that went into our universities, went into our capitals, went into our places, our, our institutions, not only in this country, but around the world, to the point where we are today, that the nations deny that God exists. We teach our children that they evolved. We tell them that they're here for no reason and their, their life really means nothing. We no longer know what a man or a woman is. We don't know what marriage is. You tell me, are the nations deceived? Here's the point. If the thousand years are representative of church history, it says that at the end of the thousand years or right towards the end, Satan will be released for a short while. That's what the, it says in the same passage. He'll re be released for a little while. Well, what does that little while mean? That could be 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. I don't know, a little while. Church history has been 2,000 years. If he's released for a little while, 
It might be 100 or 200 or 300 years. But one of the key signs that you'll know that he is released is that the nations will be, again be deceived. And I could make a strong case that we are somewhere near the end. I'm not saying that Jesus come back tomorrow, but the nations are thoroughly deceived. So take that or leave it for whatever you want. But here's what we all agree upon. It's this. The reason that the, uh, the, reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This we agree on. We not, might not agree on how it all is going to play out at the end, but this we agree upon. That is why I said earlier, folks, if one prophecy you want to be very familiar with in the Old Testament, it is Genesis 3.15. It's the biggest and best spoiler alert in all of human history because in it we learn this. Christ wins. He wins. That child born in the manger would be the one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Folks, we might be fighting a vicious enemy, but we are ultimately fighting a defeated enemy. It's exactly why Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan can't stop what I'm starting, Jesus said. I am here, I'm gonna crush the head of the serpent. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It is going to spread to the ends of the earth and it can't be stopped. Satan himself cannot stop it. Folks, that means you and I have one job. Live like you know the end of the story, because you do. Jesus, God told us what would happen at Calvary, and that's what happened. And he tells us what's going to happen at the consummation of all things. Live like you know the end of the story. Invest your life in the kingdom that you know will be left standing when all is said and done. Amen? And serve the king that will be on the throne when all is said and done. Kings and kingdoms come and go. Do not put your hope in the people or politicians of this world. You put your hope in the king and the kingdom that will last forever. I don't know where we are with regard to the turn of, return of, the, of Christ, but we're 2,000 years into church history, folks. And you and I have been called to live in a very crazy time in world history. At a time where there's planes, trains, automobiles, I said it before, I'll say it again, no other generation could have possibly imagined the pressures that you and I face and that we live in in today's world. Just the, the fact that we have electricity has changed everything. And who did God put in this generation? You. I know a lot of us, we go, I'd love to have been alive during the time of Christ or, you know, at some other time in world history. But I like to think that when God was going, I'm going to who am I going to put at this point in world history in the 21st century when there's the internet and there's social media and there's all this pressure and the, there's 8 billion people on the planet and all of the crazy stuff. Who am I going to put on the planet? You and me. I'm glad he put me here. I'm glad he put you here. The question is, will we stay singularly focused upon God's kingdom? Spoiler alert. That child in the major is the king of a kingdom that can't be stopped. And I've got good news for you. You guys want some really good news this morning? Here's some really good news. The harvest is plentiful. You want some bad news? The workers are few. Why are the workers few? Could it be that many of the workers are focused on the wrong kings and kingdoms and not on the king and kingdom that will be left standing when all is said and done? Folks, you and I have been given the greatest spoiler alert in world history. We know how the story ends. Live like it. Live like you know how the story ends. Invest where you're guaranteed success in that one kingdom that will be left standing. I finish with this. It's a simple challenge. As we enter this Advent season, what can we do? Who should we be? What type of people should we be? 
Here, live courageously today like someone who already knows how the story ends. You understand that you are a very rare group of people. Most people in the world today, there's 8 billion people on the planet today. And if you were to ask any one of those 8 billion people, how is world history going to play out? Most of them would have no clue. You do. That puts you in a very rare group. You know how the story ends. Live like it. Live like it. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. As you go out this holiday season, don't make this season about you. Make it about the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to pray. Give me people. Put them in my path that I can invite them to church, whether I use this or I use this. Let me, God, be a light unto you this holiday season. Let me shine for you. Let me be sold out for you. You came to destroy the works of the devil. You have set me free. Now, God, use me to help to set others free. Amen. Amen. 